welcome. You know, it is so good to be in his house today. You know, I saw you guys all online last week, you know, with the weather and everything like that, but even still, isn't there just something special about the body gathering together? Amen. Amen. All right, so if this is your first time at Calvary Chapel, we want to welcome you here. Know that we go line by line, verse by verse through God's Word. That is the only way that we will do it here. So as it seems like it's been so long since we've been together, let's give a little recap of where it was that we left off. So the last time, two weeks ago when we were together, we saw Jesus going ahead and he came home. He came home to Nazareth, his hometown, and he was invited to be that guest rabbi in the synagogue. He comes into the synagogue and they hand him a scroll, but not just any scroll, a scroll of Isaiah, specifically Isaiah 61, which was a messianic prophecy. So Jesus' first, if you will, sermon was about himself. And he closes it and he says, what you have just heard this is what's coming to pass. It's me. I'm the Messiah. And everybody in the town goes, he's here. He's here. Oh, yes, yes, the Messiah, he's here. Is that what they did? No. They run him out of town on a rail. They're like, get out. What are you doing? Because they thought they knew Jesus because they saw him as a little child. They saw him running around, skinning his knee, all of these things. You see, there was that prejudice that was there. There was that preconceived notion that they thought that they knew Jesus. And they took him to the edge of a cliff, trying to throw him off. It was a real cliffhanger, wasn't it? But they didn't. It says that he turned around and he walked right through them. And they parted. Now, we don't know what it was that he did or what he said. Maybe he just said, you know what? I know the scriptures. I wrote them. This is not the way it's going to happen. And then from there, he left and he goes to Capernaum. And the title of last week's message was Missed Opportunities. Because those in Nazareth could have had all of the miracles, all of the healings, all of the things that happened in Capernaum. But instead, they threw him out of town. And you know, the sad part about it is it says that in, in, within Scripture, you never see Jesus go back. So he's there in Capernaum. He's going ahead and he's healing people. He's taking unclean spirits and throwing them out. Now, the amazing thing about it is as he's casting out this demon, the demon says to him, it says, you are the Christ, the Son of God. So evil was the first one to recognize good. He rebukes them, tells them to be quiet. Then he heads after the synagogue over to Peter's mother-in-law's house where she's ill with a fever. Now, we don't think of a fever as a necessarily a big thing nowadays. We take a couple of aspirin and we're good, right? But in those days, it might have been a little bit bigger. However, one of the things that I encouraged each and every one of you was they still sought Jesus' help. They asked him to heal her. You see, nothing is too big or too small for us to go ahead and ask of the Lord. And I wanted you guys to go ahead and take that with you and remind you of that, encourage you that uh, there isn't anything that's too small for him. 
And then as that chapter was wrapping up, we saw that they brought many to him, for him to be healed. And with that, he went ahead and it says, and he laid hands on every one of them and healed them. Not just most of them, not just some of them, but every one of them to be healed. And that catches us up to chapter 5, where we're going to go ahead and start off today. Now, today we're going to see Jesus perform yet more miracles. He's going to be calling some of his apostles. He's going to cleanse a leper. He's going to forgive and heal a paralytic. We've got a busy day ahead of us, don't we? However, with all these miracles that we're seeing, we're going to see one thing that is most important. And it's the title of today's message. It is simply, Believe. Would you pray with me? Precious Heavenly Father, we come before you. And Lord, we do believe. We know that you were died, you buried, and you rose again on the third day in fulfillment of the scriptures. God, we believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God. Lord, three persons in one. And you came here for us. Lord, we're going to celebrate your communion a little bit later today. And as such, Lord, I pray that you would truly bathe us with this word. And Lord, if there's anything of you, I pray you etch it upon our hearts. But God, if there's anything of man, I pray that you would allow it to fall upon deaf ears. You know how much we love you. We thank you. And it's in Jesus' precious name that we pray. And everybody said? Amen. 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 So starting off in Luke chapter 5, verse 1. So it was, as the multitude pressed about him to hear the word of God, that he stood by the lake of Gesserit. So we're going to bring up a map of the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee was known by a couple of different names. The Lake of Gesserit was one, also the Sea of Tiberias. And if you go ahead and you look at all of the surrounding towns and ports that are there, you can see where some of these names came from. Fishing. In the Sea of Galilee, it was big business. The lake, eight miles wide and 13 miles long, it was surrounded by all this fertile plain. And when we were over there this last year, you saw all of the agriculture going on. It's not the arid desert necessarily that was always portrayed, it seems, whenever we see any movies about our Lord. And as such, in Jesus' day, there were nine major cities that were around the lake with approximately 15,000 citizens in each one. They say that it's possible that, that the population around the lake would have been even larger than what was in Jerusalem at that time. Now, the name of the Galilean towns reflected the importance of that fishing life. For example, Tyrachia means the place of salt fish. Remember, they would go ahead and pack up the fish and salt them and then ship them off to, over to Jerusalem and over to Rome. Then there was Bethsaida. And that, we know that four fishermen, or excuse me, four apostles came from there. We see that in Matthew 4, 18 through 21, also in John 1, 44. And Bethsaida means fish town. Now, everybody within the town was usually employed by the fishing industry in one way or another. And the shores were a fisherman's paradise. In Jesus' day, hundreds of fishing boats would have been out on the lake. And their diet consisted of only a little bit of meat, but the mainstay 
was fish. It came highly salted because remember, they didn't have the refrigerators or the freezers that we have today, right? And so it was heavily salted. It was the way of preserving their catch of the day. So in this passage, we see the popularity of Jesus is growing in his ministry. The word was being spread about the miracles that he was performing. However, the crowd goes ahead. It starts pushing. It starts shoving up against him. And it made it difficult for Jesus to even get around at time because of the multitudes. Now, I love what one of the commentators had said. He said that here it was, the multitudes were thronging him. If there's anybody who tries to fall asleep during this message, I will have one of the ushers come around and throng you. (laughs) So stay awake. Pay attention. Verse 2. And saw two boats standing by the lake, but the fishermen had gone from them and were washing their nets. So first, let's take a look at some of the boats. So this is actually, they call this the Jesus boat uh, over in Israel. And with it, it was trapped in the mud. And they found it and were able to raise it up, bring it back. Remember, this was over 2,000 years old. Uh, Next slide, please. However, as you look at it, you can see this wasn't just a little dinghy, okay? This was a good-sized boat. On average, what they would do is they would have six fishermen going out on there. There was one to go ahead and steer the boat. There was two that would operate the sails. There was one that actually held the mast, and then two would primarily take care of the nets and or the fishing. But as you can see there, I mean, you could have had a good number of people within there. So... Um, You know, the interesting thing was the challenge was after they were able to resurrect it from the bottom of the lake, one of the things, it started deteriorating. There were worms all within it that was eating the wood. Crazy. But they were able to, I'm sure, humanely take care of those worms. And it's still preserved today. Who knows? That book could have even been the very one that Jesus sat in. Now, When the fisherman's day ended, it wasn't like they just went ahead, went home, and started watching Fox News. They had much work to do. There was the mending, the stretching, the washing of the nets, preserving fish, maintaining boats and supplies, negotiating with other merchants, and it made for very long and tiring hours. Now, we're about to see one of those fishermen in this story was Peter. Now, if I were Peter... After fishing all night long and not catching a single thing, I might have been very tempted just to go ahead instead of washing my nets, but sell them. (laughs) Get rid of them. But you know, Peter is an excellent example in the fact that here it is, right? I may come up empty in my ministry. I may be empty in what I put my hand to do. And we're not supposed to sell our nets. We're not supposed to turn our backs We're not supposed to give up because like Peter, I don't know what's going to happen right around the corner. See, Peter was washing his nets because if you didn't wash the nets, basically they would rot and they would break. They had to be cleaned with fresh water after each day's use. And they needed to be stretched in order to be useful. So too, we As fishers of men, we are nets that must be continually washed with the water of the word and stretched by the spirit in order to remain useful. Now, maybe you come here and you're thinking, why should I even bother getting washed or stretched? The Lord isn't using me. What's the point? 
But you see, just like Peter, we don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. Which brings us to our first point. Be ready. Be ready. You see, we need to be ready for the rapture. When God comes back to this earth, what is it that you want to be doing? Do you want to be found studying the scriptures or watching some census movie on TV? Be ready to give a testimony when somebody challenges your faith. Be ready to be challenged, to be stretched, to be washed with his word. When the Lord wants to use someone, he doesn't find the one who's rotten and brittle. No, he touches the one who has been washed by the word of the water, the water of the word, and who has been stretched and is ready to be used. Verse 3, then he got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, and asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the multitudes from the boat. First of all, I love the brazenness of Jesus. He just walks up, steps into a boat, and says, shove off, mateys. <laughs> Now, my grandmother used to live by a canal, and my sister and I would love to go down to the docks, and we'd walk along the side of the canal, but sometimes the docks weren't necessarily connected. So we might have just walked on somebody's boat in order to get over to the next dock. And, you know, outside of my grandfather's boat, I was never so brazen as to go ahead and just sit in some complete stranger's boat and hang out, right? But notice... What Jesus does, he sits in, or he comes into the boat, and he sits down. Do you guys remember from our teaching when Jesus was in the synagogue? When does the, what, what, the rabbi comes into the synagogue, he gives the message, or he, he goes ahead, he reads the scripture, and then he sits down when he's ready for the message. And that's exactly what Jesus did. He was ready to teach. Now, I love the cleverness of our Lord. He has all these people that want to see him and want to hear him. So what does he do? How does he accomplish this? Jesus has Peter push out a little bit into the water. Now everyone can see him. The other thing about this too, which is fascinating, is here it is. Air nearest to the water it's, is cooler than that that's above the water. As such, as tra sound travels, it will reflect off of the cooler water. So in other words, it would make it to those that were on the shore. When the water is calm and the surface is flat, it allows those sound waves to travel unobstructed in order to reflect from the surface to the crowd's ears. Now, how many of you have ever watched the, uh, the show Survivor? Yeah, you know, I used to really like that show. And then when I found out that it wasn't so much about surviving on an island as it was conniving and backstabbing and all the other little things that would go on that I, I kind of got a bad taste in my mouth. But I remember one of the episodes where a couple of them had banded together. They had made an alliance. And they were sitting in this little lagoon. And they were saying who they were going to blindside next, right? The problem was... The people that they were going to blindside were sitting on the shore. They could hear everything that they were saying. Calm waters is not a good place to go ahead and tell secrets. So just tuck that one into your pocket. Right? Now, when Jesus was on the land, instead of his voice dissipating into tall grass and other obstructions, the sound waves would travel longer over those distances in the calm water. Jesus, our Savior. 
He was a pretty smart guy, wasn't he? Verse 4. When he had stopped speaking, he said to Simon, launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. Now, there was primarily two kinds of nets that were used. One was called a seguin. The other one was the ampliachon. The seguin was the larger one, and it was fitted and weighted. Uh, it, it was weighted on the bottom and then had buoys up on the top. And primarily, it was used in trolling. When we see in Matthew 13, verses 47, this is the one that's used. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet, a seguin, that was cast into the sea and gathered some of... a of every kind, which when it was full, they drew to shore and they sat down and gathered the good into vessels, but threw the bad away. So in the water, it would be towed behind the boats and it would stand almost upright. And the smaller one, however, was more shaped like an umbrella and they would use that in order to cast off of the side of the boats. But now notice, it wasn't until Jesus had told Peter to put out a little in verse 3, that then he tells him to launch out into the deep. See, my problem is, all too often I say, Lord, launch me out into the deep. First, without being put out a little. Use me, Lord. Heal. Let me heal the blind. Raise the dead. But I don't want to teach those first graders. You see, but in Zechariah 4.10, it states, for who has despised the day of small things? If you're wondering why you're not being used in the deeper waters of ministry, maybe it's because you haven't been obedient in launching out in the little things, the simple callings, the unnoticed tasks. Take a leap of faith that I encourage you at the beginning of the year and see if you aren't then called out into those deeper waters. Now notice Peter has a choice. He can grab the large net or the small one. But notice, what does Jesus say in this passage? He doesn't say net singular. He says nets, plural. Now, you see, in the film world, that's what we would call foreshadowing, okay? Let's see what Peter does. Verse 5. But Simon asked and said to him, Master, we have toiled all night and caught nothing. Nevertheless, at your word, I will let down the net. You can almost hear the exhaustion in Peter's voice. Lord, this doesn't make sense to me. Experience doesn't validate it practically. It's not the way we were taught to do it in fishing school. But Lord, at your word, I'll do what you say. Now, from the verse before, Jesus says to push out into the deep. And I checked with avid anglers, and I asked, hey, when is the best time to fish? And of course, they said, whenever the fish are biting. However, traditionally, it's morning and evening that's the best time. So Peter, being a fisherman by trade, he would have known, this isn't the best time of day to go ahead and do so. But he's still obedient. Kind of. Notice what Peter says. Nets, like Jesus recommended, right? Or singular net. He says, I will let down the net. In the words of Sheriff Brody from Jaws, Peter, you're going to need a bigger boat. <laughs> but notice also, Jesus, I mean, Peter calls Jesus master. 
Maybe it was because of the teachings that he had, Peter had just heard. Or maybe it was because he had saw the healing of his mother-in-law. Or maybe because he had heard all the other stories about the miracles, the healings that Jesus was performing. So there was that familiarity that he had with Christ's reputation. And as such, Peter shows the respect by calling him master. Verse 6. And when they had done this, they caught a great number of fish, and their net was breaking. Now, the Greek word that's translated break speaks only of the beginning of the breaking process. In other words, the net was beginning to show signs of strain. Therefore, had it not been washed previously and stretched previously, it would have broken completely, and the catch would have been lost. Verse 7. So they signaled to their partners in the boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Think about this. They had just been out fishing all night and caught nothing. Now the boats were about to sink because the catch was so large. A few points about this. First of all, with Jesus, nothing is impossible. Can I get an amen? amen? Yes. Remember, this is the worst time of the day. The fish weren't biting, yet still the boats are filled to almost sinking. Secondly, if you want abundance in your life, do what Peter does. Fall down, repent, and worship Jesus. That brings us to our second point. Fall down, repent, and worship Jesus. Fall down, repent, and worship Jesus. We worship a God of abundance. He doesn't give us just a little bit of sunlight or just enough air or just enough water. There is abundance that he gives us in our lives. Now, I'm not talking about necessarily material things, wealth, clothes, or food, but there is an abundance of his joy in our life if we will just fall down, repent, and worship him. Peter falls down and says, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Now, he doesn't say this because of some unrepentant sin, that he's got some deep, dark sin that's hidden in his life. But instead, I believe he does this for two reasons. Doubt and Jesus. Doubt. Because if Peter had really believed Jesus, he would have put out multiple nets. Plural, right? And Jesus... Because standing next to the sinless Lamb of God, Peter recognizes he's nothing but filthy rags. Just like it says in Isaiah 64, verse 4. Next to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, we are all just filthy rags. Now also, Peter Peter's confession is what ministry is all about. Here's how to take in a catch in your own spiritual life. Number one, don't try to earn it. Peter, Peter didn't say, oh, yes, this makes perfect sense to me. I was faithful in launching out in the little things. Then I was sitting in the boat, taking in your word eagerly. No wonder I'm used in such a mighty way. No wonder I'm the recipient of this great catch. No, he simply falls on his knees in humility before Jesus. 
And I'm convinced that the Lord is looking for people, organizations, churches, who he can bless like Peter. We don't deserve this. Grace is the key to ministry, the key to prosperity, the key to victory in the body corporately and in our lives personally. The highest form of worship is when we're just amazed at how good God is to sinners like us. Verse 9. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish, which they had taken. And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. From now on, you will catch men. Now, unfortunately, because of our LGBT alphabet mafia, what we live in world, from now on, you will catch men. It just doesn't sit right with me. <laughs> However, I love Matthew's translation of it. In Matthew 4, 19, he states, Then he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Now, normally when we think of fishing, what do we think of? We think of a rod and a reel, right? Singular, fish. But here it was, Jesus coming to his soon apostles. What were they fishing with? Nets, right? Yes. And in Acts 16.31, it states, So they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, you and your household. You see, we shouldn't just be praying for the individual. Now, don't get me wrong. It's important to pray for individuals. But we should be praying for families, for groups. We should be praying for organizations, the people in our society your co-workers, the county workers, local and state officials. Focus on the individual, but also cultures, or many cultures, they focus on the family, the village, or the tribe. In some cultures, if the chief converts, the whole tribe will convert too. Just as Jesus used the word, the plural word for nets, our mindset should be on the multitude as well. Now, calling the apostles, I don't think that this was an accident because I believe right now society has glorified, even set up for failure, the images of the lone wolf, the one who's successful because of their separation and independence. Look at what separation during COVID caused alcoholism and drug abuse at an all-time high, suicide rates through the roof. See, we were not created to be alone. God said that in the very beginning. It is not good for man to be alone. Genesis 2, 18. We see here Jesus setting an example for us as he starts building his team. The other item that's so encouraging is Jesus doesn't go ahead and call the most religious, the smartest, the brightest, he calls a bunch of rough and tough guys. A first, act first, uh, ask questions later kind of guys. And to be honest with you, I still marvel that God uses me. Because if Jesus would use these individuals in order to turn the world upside down, there's hope for you and for me too. Verse 11. So when they had brought their boats to land, they forsook all and followed him. You see, my tendency is to go ahead and say, wow, look what the Lord has given to us. What a catch. We can keep this going. 
We can expand the business. We'll increase our distribution all throughout Galilee. This is amazing. But that's not what these guys said. In leaving the fish in essence, in effect, they said, forget the fish. Forget the industry. Even the ministry. Lord, it's you personally that I want. Jesus didn't ask them to leave the fish. They did so on their own, realizing that what they were striving for no longer mattered. That's why Peter was used so effectively, because he left everything in order to pursue Jesus passionately. Following Jesus became their main priority in the disciples' life. It's the essence of discipleship. Is Jesus the center of our lives? Is he our main priority? Verse 12. And it happened when he was in a certain city that behold, a man who was full of leprosy saw Jesus and fell on his face and implored him saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. So first off, I love the meticulous uh, uh, aspect of Luke. He was a doctor, right? So this guy didn't just have leprosy. He was full of leprosy, as it says here. And leprosy was a horrific disease. And it's a picture of sin. Leprosy begins below the surface and then begins to spread and destroy. Like sin, leprosy is contagious, affecting not only the one who commits the sin, but those around him. So desperately did this man want to go ahead and be cured, to be changed, that when he heard that Jesus was coming to town, that he broke all the rules, forbidding lepers to enter where there were any uncontaminated people. You see, a leper, according to the Talmud, a leper had to stay six feet away from other people, 150 feet if there was a wind. And when there was a wind, they needed to stay downwind as well. They were required to go ahead and yell out at the top of their lungs, unclean, unclean, so that everyone could go ahead and part their ways. And if you touched a leper, were near a leper, touched anything that a leper had touched or entered his or her home, you were considered ceremonially unclean. Yet here, this man thinks, if I can just get to Jesus... He can cleanse him. And the same is true for you and for me. For when we feel as though there's something eating at us, causing us to lose our sensitivity, the key is simply to go to Jesus. And the leper knew this. Verse 13. Then he put out his hand and touched him, saying, I am willing. Be cleansed. Immediately the leprosy left him. Jesus didn't say, go to a seminar on overcoming leprosy. He said, you need to be clean. I want you to be clean. Therefore, you will be clean right now. Now, maybe that's a word for some of us here today that are feeling tainted, polluted, affected by some habit, some sin, something that has a grasp on you. At the moment you say from your heart, I want to be clean, the Lord will say, I'm willing, and be cleansed. Now, notice, Jesus not only speaks the word to the leper, but he touched the leper. 
think on this for a moment. Imagine after contracting the leprosy, not only being basically pulled away from society, but not being able to be touched by another human being. Perhaps this was even years that he was in this state. And Jesus doesn't say, just be healed, but he shows his compassion. He shows his humanity as he reaches out his hand and touches the man. So too, the Lord doesn't hold his nose or turn away from us in disgust, but instead, when others might be uh, irritated by your sin, by your flaws, not Jesus. Instead, he embraces us. Verse 14, and he charged him to tell him, tell no one, but go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing as a testimony to them just as Moses commanded. However, the report went around concerning him all the more, and the great multitudes came together to hear and to be healed by him of their infirmities. So, two points about this. First, what does Jesus tell the leper to do? He says, go to the priests, right? Give an offering as Moses commanded them. Who was cleansed of leprosy in the Old Testament? We only have one that's written about, Naaman. And it's been almost 1,500 years until the moment that Jesus now goes ahead and cleanses the leper. And he tells him, go to the priest. Now, when they got there, the priest would have been like, oh, that's right. Uh, there's a ceremony or something. Hold on one second. Uh, Moses, uh, Deuteronomy. Uh, what was the offering? What was the ceremony? Uh, right? You see, this, this wouldn't have been something, <coughs> excuse me, like Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. From my understanding, that's said at the beginning of every Jewish service. No, they would have had to have looked this up, what this was that they needed to do. But then think about it. We're going to read in verse 17 when we get there, probably in another five years, <coughs> that, that here it was, there was going to be a bunch of lepers that were coming to the priest, going ahead and showing that they had been healed. They would have been sitting there going, what the heck is going on? This hasn't happened for thousands of years, and now all these people are being healed. Do you know why it was written in the book of Deuteronomy by Moses? Why? There was a procedure that needed to be done because God knew thousands of years in the future, his son would be saying to lepers, go to the priests. And the miracle cleansing would point to his son, the Messiah. Notice, I've been very careful to call it a cleansing, not a healing. Because even the leper goes ahead and he says, if you are willing, make me clean. Remember I told you, leprosy being a type or a picture or a representation of sin in the scriptures. Leprosy was humanly incurable at that time. Sin is humanly incurable. What is true of all lepers is true of all sinners. So not only to this leper, but to each and every one of us. Jesus says, I am not only able to cleanse you of all your sins, but I am also willing to do so. 
Now, because Jesus primarily came to save sinners rather than to do works and wonders, he constantly steered clear of all the theatrics within his ministry. Likewise, in our lives, in our ministries, our main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. And the main thing is Jesus. I came to you preaching nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified, Paul would say in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 2, verse 2. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Make Jesus the center of your ministry, and you'll be in harmony with what Paul did too. Verse 16. So he himself often withdrew into the wilderness and prayed. Now, I am not going to beat a dead horse, but what did Jesus do here? He found solitude and silence. So if you missed it, if you didn't catch the message back in chapter 3 with John the Baptist, I encourage you, go back and look, okay? We need silence and solitude in our lives. Jesus goes ahead and models it for us. Verse 17. Now it happened on a certain day as he was teaching that there were Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting by who had come out of every town of Galilee, Judea, and Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was present to heal them. So according to 1 Corinthians 12, 9, there are gifts of healing. Verse 9 says, To another faith by the same Spirit. To another gifts of healing by the same Spirit. This means that at a given time, the Lord releases certain gifts to give out to people who are hurting, um, that need the healing according to his sovereign will, according to his perfect plan. But I believe sometimes there can be a misunderstanding for somebody to say that they have the gift of healing because maybe their healings is only for three people or maybe it's for eight or specifically for a meeting that they're at during a specific time. Why aren't we seeing more times in the power of the Lord to heal in the present? Perhaps it's because we haven't followed the model in verse 16, where we read that Jesus was in a place of prayer. Prayer precedes power. There's no question there is an intricate connection between the two. Verse 18, then behold, Men brought on a bed who was a man who was paralyzed, whom they sought to bring in and lay before him. And when they could not find how they might bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the housetop and let him down with his bed through the tilings into the midst before Jesus. So a few points on this. In Jesus' day, the roofs were constructed with dirt and packed in between the beams. So these men would have climbed up on that flat roof where people would either sit or they would actually have gardens that were up there. And they began to dig. Now, this wasn't actually completely unusual because Josephus goes ahead and makes mentions that the fact that sometimes coffins were lowered through the roofs of larger houses when somebody had died. Now, Second, we all need friends like this. When they couldn't get through the crowd, did they just go ahead and go, oh, well, Fred, we tried. 
<laughs> right? No, what did they do? They couldn't get through the crowd. So then one of them said, hey, let's go up on the roof. So they go ahead and they go up onto the roof. Imagine the determination of how strong their faith must have been to have and want to get their friends healed. So they go up onto the roof where Jesus was inside and they start shoveling. The challenge to get this paralytic to see Jesus. Then the crowd was too heavy. Let's try the roof. Now, I remember a few weeks ago when we were praying corporately, all of a sudden I heard all this noise outside and this shoveling and digging. Turns out what it was, and I was thinking to myself, what the heck is going on, right? But it turns out they were shoveling out the snow in order to get Matt and his wheelchair up and into the sanctuary. Now, there's no doubt that as Jesus was sitting inside of that house and all these people gathered around him that suddenly they start hearing shoveling up on the roof and they were probably thinking the very same thing. What the heck is going on, right? But what happens? You see, his friends carried him. They lifted him and they brought him to Jesus. That's the kind of friends we need in our lives. When things get so bad, when we lose a job, a loved one, our will to live, when we're paralyzed with what to do next, we need friends that will carry you through those difficult times. When things seem so bad that your countenance is so low, you need friends that will lift you up. When there seems like there is no answer on how things are going to work out, you need friends that will bring you to Jesus. And that brings us to our third and our final point today. Real friends, friends bring you to Jesus. Real friends bring you to Jesus. Look to your left. Look to your right. Maybe those real friends are sitting right there. Verse 20. When he saw their faith, he said to them, man, your sins are forgiven. So I almost wonder if there wasn't a little bit of hippie inside of Jesus, right? Man, your sins are forgiven. But <laughs> perhaps these men who just went through all this trouble and lowered Jesus down, they come and they hear him say, your sins are forgiven. Wait a second, they say. We brought him here in order to be healed. And now you're going ahead and just saying your sins are forgiven? Yet Jesus knew that the deepest needs that people have are not physical or material, but are spiritual and eternal. Therefore, although those on the, that lowered him down from the roof might have felt cheated, I suggest to you the paralyzed man was elated. Verse 21. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to reason, saying, who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? And they were right. But when Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered and said to them, Why are you reasoning in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you? Or to say, rise up and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, arise Take your bed and go to your house. Immediately he rose up before them, took up what he had been lying on, and departed to his own house, glorifying God. How do we know sins are forgiven? 
How do we know the gospel is true? When people who were paralyzed and lame begin to walk, begin to leap and praise God. When people who were paralyzed by sinfulness and foolishness embrace the good news of forgiveness, the reality of a person's conversion is manifest in their walk. If there's no walk, then it's just talk. Verse 26. And they were all amazed, and they glorified God, and were filled with fear, saying, We have seen strange things today. I'm going to ask the worship team to go ahead and come on back up. And yeah, we've seen some pretty strange things today, haven't we? Boats being filled, lepers being cleansed, digging on a roof, a bed descending, Jesus forgiving, a paralyzed man walking. All these miracles in just this one little passage. But what do I say to you? Simply believe. 